0: Luke, for everyone, it's our, our series we're in right now. And I was thinking about my, my hips, actually. Uh, my two new hips. If you don't know me, then um, you should know that I have two metal hips that I've had put in. And uh, when I was 14, I developed arthritis, and it got worse and worse and worse, and went back and forth between my hips until they became not very useful anymore. And so I think it was 26, is that right? 27, the number checker, 27. And uh, I got two new hips at the same time. And although I was a bit nervous about getting new hips, I also had this deep, deep belief that they were gonna fix everything, that, that once I got in my new hips, I wouldn't be in pain anymore. And I had this, this hope and this longing that that would be the case. And of course, I, mo- I woke up, the you know after the surgery and i was in agony because uh, actually they had they had put my legs in a position just lying in the bed in a position that my legs hadn't been in for years because of my horrible mobility so my muscles were like s- just screaming and I, I was just in agony. I had to, like, call the nurse to come in and move my legs back. Oh, oh okay. And, and then I felt, you know, my face, I was, I was trying to talk, and I had like this big pull in the lip. And so, I, you know, I looked in the mirror, and I saw it looked like I'd been in a prize fight, like someone had punched me in the face, like the doctor was working on my hip, and then he got angry, and he just went over and punched me in the face. <laughs> that's what I picture anyway. I'm not sure if that's what happened. And, and I... I you know, over the next few weeks, like, it started to get better and better and the pain, you know, cleared up. And although I was worried, did this really happen or not? Is this really going to work? After a few weeks, it, it did. The pain went away and, and I, I was totally well. And I didn't, don't have any more pain in my hips. And I found that over the days and weeks after, you know, I totally recovered from this, that I actually didn't have any more problems at all. My hips, my new hips had fixed everything in my whole life. Thank you, Phil, for laughing. <laughs> he understood my sarcasm. You know, I could think, oh, n- n- you know, n- I'm not going to be ungrateful for anything. I will, I, will, I will be thankful for everything now that I'm not in pain anymore. And of course, that doesn't happen. If you ask my family, they'll know. They'll tell you. Have you ever had something that you just knew? You just, you deep down believed it would fix everything. Whatever it was, I want you to think about something that you thought was going to fix everything. Like maybe it was an inheritance, an inheritance check, or or maybe it was a new relationship. Or maybe it was a new house. Maybe it was a marriage. Or maybe it was a divorce. Maybe it was a, a new job. Or a new baby. Or a new TV. Those are almost the same thing. We've all had these moments, th- these moments where we had this, this hope and this expectation that, uh, of a certain event or situation or a thing that it was going to fix everything. Deep down, we believed this was going to happen. And this is what happens for the disciples as they crest the hill coming into Jerusalem. Just as they get to the very top and they're coming over the edge, I mean, that's the feeling they would experience. It's a long, dusty walk from Jericho, which is near the lowest point on earth, one of the lowest places on the face of the earth, and then winding up through the sandy hills of the Judean desert, halfway up this road, you reach sea level, halfway up the road. And then you still have like a mountain to climb to get over. And it's hot and it's long. It's, it's 3,300 feet in about 17 miles that you're climbing. Actually, one commentator wrote, it's a long drive, let alone a walk. And when you finally crest the hill on the, of the Mount of Olives, there'd be this relief and this excitement. There'd be, you know, suddenly the dusty desert changes to like this blush green of, of Jerusalem springtime and Passover time, and the pilgrims take this road, and they'd be singing as they go, singing the the songs of ascent, all these different people, and all coming in together, it would be an experience. I mean, that's why it's called the triumphal entry. (laughs) It's this incredible thing, this incredible moment. And it's a true moment when they all kind of knew it was going to work out. They all kind of had this moment where they thought, this is it. It's going to work out. Everything's going to be okay. Let's read it together. It's Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. I'm reading out of the uh, English Standard Version. Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 40. And when he'd said these things, he went on ahead. It's Jesus uh, is the he. He went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, "Um, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. (laughs) And it all worked out. And they brought it to Jesus. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is God's word. This morning, we're going to uh, look at and experience the reality that we trust, worship, and follow a true and better king, Jesus. We trust, worship, and follow a true and better king, Jesus. He's a confident king. A confident king. There's a story of a noted brain surgeon. His name was uh, Dr. Bronson Ray. And he was out taking a walk in his neighborhood one afternoon. And as he was walking along the sidewalk on the other side of the street, a kid riding a scooter very fast rolled this scooter right into a tree. And the kid's head hit the tree and he fell back. And so the doctor ran across the street to see if he was okay. And it was a serious injury, like blood and really like not a good situation. And so he began to administer first aid. And as he did that, he did what all good first aiders should do and said, hey, you there at the red shirt, go call an ambulance and report back to me. What some version of that. Sent someone for the ambulance, and then as he was taking care of this kid, suddenly this little boy, who was the same age as the kid on the ground, walked over and tapped Dr. Bronson, or Dr. Ray, on the shoulder and said, um, excuse me, I'd better take over now, sir. I'm a Boy Scout, and I know first aid. Woody Allen says, confidence is what you have before you understand the problem. <laughs> confidence. The confidence of a Boy Scout. Why... Why does Jesus seem so confident? Why does he seem so confident? It's so interesting to me how in this story, there's so much time spent talking about the donkeys. Donkey. Doesn't that surprise you? Seven out of 12 verses is about the donkey. How they got the donkey. I mean, what's the deal with that? It's a funny story. Can you imagine it? If I said to you, go into Pitt Meadows and turn right at the first street and eventually you'll see a Ferrari. (laughs) Tell them that the pastor needs it. If they ask you why you're (laughs) you're taking their Ferrari. And then bring it back to me. Now, uh, you know, we we know a donkey's not a Ferrari. It's more of a, like, a colt or something. (laughs) That was my first car. That was my first car was a colt. You would say that if I told you to do that and you know, like that would take a lot of confidence. It would take a lot of confidence for me to tell you to do it. It would take a lot of confidence for you to listen to me and then to go and say it to somebody, right? Even, even if we'd worked out something, you know, like people knew who it was the pastor you're talking about, there's still an element that's, that's strange to this. It's weird. This confidence. Where does Jesus Get his confidence from. Like, have you thought about it? Like, why is Jesus never confused? Why is he never scared or nervous or anxious? Of all the emotions Jesus displays, he never seems to lack confidence. Like, there's lots of stories. The the boat is swamped in the storm, the waves are crashing over. Jesus is sleeping. He's sleeping. With his head on the pillow. And the disciples wake him up and they're freaking out. We're going to die. We're going to die. And Jesus doesn't start, oh my goodness, we're going to die. Yes, you're right. He's just so calm. And he speaks to the storm and quietly, why are you afraid? Or Jesus is in a crowd of thousands of people, thousands of hungry people. And the disciples say, what are we going to do? We're going to send them all away. Oh my goodness. Oh, there's so many people. What do we do? What do we do? And Jesus says, it's okay. Just give me what you have. And then he breaks bread and with confidence starts feeding everyone with like nothing this confidence, or his friend is sick, dying. And everyone says, you got to go, Jesus. You got to go. Come on. You got to go. And Jesus says, no, I'm going to stay here for a bit. (gasps) What? Jesus. Oh, no, no, no. I'm just going to stay. Why is he waiting? Or, hey, Jesus, you need to pay your taxes. You need to pay your taxes. Temple taxes. Oh, my goodness. And Jesus says, "Uh, just fish over here, and we'll pull up the fish, and get the money out of its mouth. Like, what? Like, what? Why does he always know what to do? How does he do that? He just always seems to know what to do and what to say. Do you know what I learned this week? The word confidence comes from the Latin word meaning firmly trusting or bold. Firmly trusting or bold. Now, I know what you're going to say. I just know. You're going to say... Jesus was God. So that's why he knows everything. He's God. I mean that's why he's never at a loss. That's his he has this self-confidence of being the deity, God. That's his that is confidence. But Jesus is 100% human. 100% human. Just like he's 100% God. And he's tempted and he cries. Jesus cries. I don't know if you knew that. He gets angry. He feels hot and cold and his feet get dirty and his coat gets wet, his cloak. He feels pain, he gets tired. He needs to be alone sometimes. He's human. Philippians 2 says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus empties himself of his glory, of his God power. And then he's filled with the Spirit. And when he's connected to the Father, it's through the Spirit. And when he's healing people, it's through the Spirit. And when he's being raised from the dead, it's because of the power of the Spirit. Romans eight eleven says, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I mean, this is amazing. If Jesus didn't just live out of the power of his Godhead, if he lived out of the filling of this Holy Spirit, then that means maybe we could live that way too. Maybe that's what he means when he says, as you sent me, I'm sending them. Or all the things I did, you'll do even greater things. His confidence can be our confidence. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit, walking in our lives by his power. Now, I don't know if you know this, but right now in this room, there are radio waves passing through. You can't see them, and you actually can't hear them unless you have a radio. And there are different, I want to say frequencies, but AM and FM, right? So you could have, if, if you want to, you could listen to AM, but everyone knows the, the spirit is moving on FM, because <laughs> that's where all the good radio stations are, Right? Unless you like sports radio or news, maybe you are in a- AM. Anyway, the point is that that you have to tune in. You have to get your radio and tune in to the stuff that's passing through this room all the time. If we had a radio on right here, we could say, oh, this is what's passing through this room right now. And it's the same thing. The Holy Spirit wants and is constantly speaking and wanting to lead us. And we just we need to just tune in to what he's saying and doing. We have the same spirit as Jesus living inside of us. That's what Romans says. Wanting to lead us, wanting to speak to us, wanting to teach and convict and confirm and guide and comfort and counsel and empower us. And our King Jesus demonstrated not self-confidence, but spirit confidence in his life. Psalm 27.3 says, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. I will firmly trust. Hebrews 13.7, the author says, So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? My confidence is in the Lord, my helper. And we have a a humble king. A humble king. I don't know if you know this, but today is the Super Bowl. Yeah, Phil didn't know that. Some people know that because they're into football, and other people don't know that because they couldn't care less. And so I'll let you know that's the case, and if you're not into football, I'll tell you, the Rams are playing the Patriots. Those are two football teams, and they're playing each other. And, um, and one of those teams, so the Patriots, is a football team that has, has gone to the Super Bowl a lot of times. And so I kind of wonder, like, has it lost its appeal when you go there ten times? Ten times the Patriots have gone to the Super Bowl. Like, it's crazy. They've, they've won five times and they've lost five times. And I think, you know, maybe they just still go there and they'll be like, yeah, it's just another game. You know, we've been here lots of times. And they won't care. But you and I know that's not true. People are going to weep today. <laughs> they're going to weep if they win the Super Bowl, and they're going to weep if they lose the Super Bowl. Both these teams are going to weep. And there are fans. There are fans. And these fans care deeply. They, they want to win, too. They, they will weep. And they will scream and yell, and they paint their selves and make a scene, like this guy. And that's the reality of, of this experience. And so I kind of wonder, like, thinking about that experience and the, 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 the hope and enthusiasm and expectation that goes into it. I'm thinking about that, and then I'm thinking about our, our story, and I wonder, you know, if there's palm leaf confetti maybe they were going to throw over Jesus. And it was that same that feeling of, like, this hope and expectation of, like, yes, yes. And then maybe I just picture, like, disciples grabbing the, the Gatorade bucket and pouring it over Jesus. Yeah, Jesus, yeah, this is it, yes. And Jesus is like, oh. And then they walk down, into you know, he's all wet, and they're so excited. Like, this is kind of the feeling. Like, it's this euphoria. But then in the middle of it all, you, you have to picture, like, this weirdness of Jesus is on a donkey. He's on a donkey. I mean like think about caesar caesar riding into rome <laughs> he rides into rome in the triumph we talked about this before and when we're talking about colossians he rides in on a chariot with lots of horses and his army and there's like you know there's all this pomp and ceremony or or mohammed entering mecca on he came on a war horse he has a big sword he's got 400 mounted men 10,000 soldiers and everyone, everyone, when he came in, was paying attention. Because if you, if you resisted, you would be vanquished or killed or enslaved. This was like a, a big thing. And Jesus rides in on a donkey. I mean, not even a donkey, let's be honest. Like a baby donkey. Little burro, I call him. Little burro, baby burro. He had a name. Why is Jesus riding on a donkey? Can't he get a horse? If, like, send the guys to the next house and get a horse. I mean, you sent them, you got a donkey, let's get a horse. Why not just get a horse? It'll be bigger. It'll be, look better, right? I think. What's Jesus doing? He's fulfilling scripture. That's what he's doing. Now, Jesus can't choose to fulfill every scripture. Some like where the Messiah is born, Jesus doesn't get to choose where he's born. So he can't change that. So he's born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. The Messiah is going to ride in on a donkey. Jesus can get a donkey, a colt. And this is the verse that he fulfills. Zechariah 9 verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt. The foal of a donkey. Jesus is fulfilling this promise that the king would come and the king would come in humility. And that's how Jesus comes. He's making a statement. He, he's not going to grasp power the way others have. He's not going to rule with the strength of his arm or the strength of his army. He will die and rise again to establish his kingdom. And then, of course, the disciples start throwing coats on the ground, and everyone joins in, and, you know, the different accounts. This, this story is told in all the different accounts of Jesus' life, and we get little snippets of information from all of them. Luke doesn't talk about the word Hosanna, which is in the other accounts, nor does he talk about palm branches. Look, I think he's a thing against palm branches, so he doesn't mention. No, I'm just kidding. But so, he doesn't mention either of those things, but we know from the other accounts this is happening. We know that lots of people join in and are throwing their coats, and everyone's joining in this acclamation. And the thing they join into is, is firstly, there's a, it's hopeful acclaim. They are worshiping Jesus as their Messiah. So, for who he is and who he will be, that he's going to be the king, the, the crowned king. That's what they worship him for. See, at Passover, Jerusalem swells to three times the size of its population that it normally is. It just, because there's all these pilgrims who come to town to celebrate Passover. That's what they're doing. And and the, the pilgrims who come into town will often... This is what I read. They'll often go back. And so on different days, if you were a pilgrim and you'd arrive in Jerusalem a little early, you might go and welcome other pilgrims coming into Jerusalem. And so there's this sense of like welcome and people coming in and excitement over the Passover and what's happening. And all these people, they would would know Psalm 118 by heart because it's part of the halal. The Psalm 113 to Psalm 118, which is sung during Passover, these different songs. So this is the song they're singing. And uh, one commentator writes that during Passover, hopes for a new act of redemption ran high at Passover. So there's all these people there, and they're all, they have this hope that God's going to do something. We don't know what, but we're hoping he's going to do something. And for them, in the time of Jesus, on that day where he wrote in, they were hopeful for a new regime change. The Romans would be out. That's what they're hoping for. If God's going to do something at Passover, we're hoping that's what it is. And this is their cry. Psalm 118.26 is a hopeful cry for the Messiah. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's what they quote. That's what they shout over him as he rides in. Now, of course, they are thinking of an earthly, physical Savior someone who's going to save them from their situation, to reign over the physical nation of Israel on a physical throne, like the one over there. That's what they're thinking. To overthrow the Roman occupation. They have no idea how much more of a savior Jesus really is than what they're thinking. And they also worship him for his past, for the things he's done. So there's this past acclaim. They worship Jesus for what he's already done. John, in his account, he tells us why there's so many people there. Why does the crowd grow so fast? And why are people so excited? And one of the reasons is that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, not very far away from there. And at that death, people were there watching. People knew he was dead. They were all there mourning. And then Jesus comes in. He raises Lazarus from the dead in front of everyone. And then there's Lazarus walking around. Like, everywhere Lazarus goes, he's like a walking around advertisement for Jesus. They would be like, oh, we want to meet Jesus. And we want to meet Lazarus. Where's Lazarus? Did you bring him along? Oh, he's over there? Okay, I want to, hey, sign my, sign my cast, you know, like, or whatever. Like, Lazarus, he was like, oh, he's, oh, he's a walking around representation of the power of Jesus, and so all these people are there to see Jesus who raised Lazarus from the dead. That's why the Pharisees want to kill Jesus and Lazarus, like both of them. This is the deal. And, and so all these people begin to praise Jesus. They praise the Lord for what they have seen and heard, for people being set free, for healing, for miracles, for the good news proclaimed, for the faithfulness of God, for the raising of the dead. David Guzik says this, he's a Bible commentator. He writes, A great indictment against much of our praises that it is mindless. We do not have anything specific in our minds that we praise God for, things that we have seen him do in our lives. Anyone who says, Praise the Lord, should be able to answer this question. Praise him for what? That used to be a really p- common thing. People say, Oh, praise the Lord. You know, we'd greet each other, oh, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, brother, praise the Lord, all oh, praise the Lord. And he would say, praise the Lord for what? What? What has God done? Look in your life. Be thankful for the things he has done, for what you've seen him do, for his faithfulness. A lot of times we struggle with praise because we are focused on our current situation. We say, oh, when I'm through this, then I'll be able to praise, you know, then it'll be better. Once I have new hips, then I'll be grateful. We have this idea it's over there. Instead of understanding that praise is a posture and it's a remembering for who God is, for what he's done, and what he's doing now. The humble king. And Jesus is a true and better king. There's a story of the guy who he gets close to a thousand foot cliff and he really wants to see over and he's kind of looking he feels safe but as he looks over the ground suddenly gives way and he starts falling off this thousand foot cliff and so he reaches and he grabs this tree root and he's hanging off this thousand foot cliff by a tree root and it's he can feel it breaking and so he's like he's not a religious person but he starts praying oh Lord save me please save me'll I'll do anything I'll go to church'll I'll, I'll give money to you I'll like whatever please 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 and it, he can feel it breaking and suddenly he hears a voice from heaven. God speaks and says, do you believe in me? And he says, yes, yes, I believe in you. Do you trust me? Yes, Lord, I trust you. I trust you. And the voice says, then just let go. I've got you. He's like, is there anyone else up there I can talk to? Anyone else? You know, we come to God most of the time. When we come to God. We draw near to God because we need something. Because we're in need. That's why we draw near to God. (laughs) And the crowds and the disciples, they all come with their expectations, their ideas of what God's going to do. Everyone who was there expected Jesus was going to walk down the street, go into the temple, and declare himself the Messiah, the King. And the revolution's going to start. That's what they're waiting for, that's what they're picturing. And then, of course, you know, everyone waits. And the next day, he clears the temple, and they wait, and they wait, and they wait. And in a week, their expectations will be dashed, and they'll be shouting a different chant, not blessed is he who comes, but crucify him. But Jesus is still a true and better king, even if they don't know it. There's a story in the Old Testament that I'll tell you and then I'll explain how it fits because you're going to wonder, why, where is he going with this story? It's the story of Elijah. And Elijah was a prophet. And in the Old Testament, Elijah was up against one of the worst kings ever, King Ahab. And King Ahab was married to Jezebel, Jezebel. And if you know that name, you'll know she was not a nice person either. So the, the combo of Ahab and Jezebel was really bad. And they led the people of Israel astray. They had them following the uh, the god Baal. And the, they had all these Asherah poles. And so they led the nation of Israel astray. And Elijah was the one who kept trying to call the people back. And so they hated, you know, they, they hated Elijah. They always trying to kill him. And so Jezebel made sure that all the prophets she could find were killed. And it Till you know, Elijah's feeling pretty alone. He's out there and hiding out in the wilderness. And finally, God comes to him and says, Elijah, it's time. And there's a drought and like three years, no water. It's like, you know, really dry time. And God says, it's time right now. And so Elijah goes. He goes to find King Ahab. And he's like, all righty. We're ready for a showdown. This is real. And so they're going to do a showdown. so Elijah says, we're going to do a showdown, you and me, on Mount Carmel. I want you to call all the prophets of Baal and Asherah, you call them all up to Mount Carmel, and we're going to see whose God is is real. And so they all show up, and the whole nation, everyone shows up, they want to see this showdown. And so Elijah's there, and all the prophets of Baal are there, and the the showdown is this, they're not going to shoot each other. They're going to build an altar. Each of them will build an altar. And Elijah says, you know, it's time we find out which God is real. Because if Baal is real, then let's follow Baal. But if God, Yahweh is real, then let's follow Yahweh. But let's not do the both thing. Or one and then the other. You know, like, let's just follow the real God. So let's choose today. And the God who answers by fire is the real God. And so they build an altar, and they put the cow on the altar, and then they wait. Elijah says, okay, it's your turn first. And so they call out and pray and pray, and it's a long story, and... and Nothing happens. And they go all, all most of the day and nothing happens. And then they say, okay, Elijah, it's your turn. Let's see if Yahweh can do better. And Elijah goes and he digs a trench and he gets them to pour water over the altar. Like it's a drought. And they're pouring water over the altar like, you couldn't light this thing with gasoline now if you wanted to. And it's like soaking wet and then there's water out of the trench. And, and then Elijah prays this simple prayer, Lord, would you show everyone that you're real, that you're living God, and send fire? and fire falls, consumes the bull, consumes the wood, consumes the water, consumes the stones. There's nothing left. And it's all burned up, and all the people are like, Oh, Yahweh is the living God. Oh wow! And they so then, as is was in the day, if you had led people astray, they won't want to kill you. So they go after the prophets of Baal. They get rid of them all, and it's this amazing epic moment. And the people of Israel, all as one, are going to follow the Lord. And and Elijah runs down the mountain, and the and he sees the cloud, and he's running in front of the chariot. And there's like all this epic. Dun 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 dun. dun and he's running, and then there's rain. The rain's coming. Finally, the rain. Sh- and the water and like revive it. This is it. This is it. And Elijah and the King Ahab goes home to Jezebel and he says, Jezebel, guess what happened? God and the fire and it's amazing. And Jezebel's like, no, it isn't. And so she's like, note to Elijah, I'm coming for you. You're dead. I'm going to kill you. And all her soldiers go looking for Elijah and Elijah takes off into the wilderness and he's in the wilderness. He's under the broom tree. And his prayer is this, kill me. Kill me, Lord. Just kill me. I'm ready to die. I've had enough. And God says, what are you doing here? What are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah's like, just kill me. Everyone's dead but me. It's just me left. Everything I thought, I thought this was going to be the moment. It's not the moment. Just kill me. Can you do that? Just kill me? And God says, what are you doing here? Elijah's like, I just answered you. God comes in the thunder and the small of the cloud and then he, in the quiet whisper, and then God says this, Elijah, I'm doing something. Go and anoint the king, a new king. Go and anoint a successor. Hey, and by the way, I have 7,000 people that I've set aside as a remnant who follow me and love me. You're not the only one. Do you want to do what I'm doing or not? That's what God says to Elijah. Why am I telling you this story in the middle of the triumphal entry? This is why. Because there is often an incredible mismatch between our expectations and what God is doing. But it's time for revival. Look, the fire fell and the clouds and The rain is here. This is it. God says, no, that's not what I'm doing. Well, then kill me now between our expectations and what God is doing, they're not the same. Most of the time, they're not the same. Oh, but I, I, I thought our church plant was going to fix everything. I thought that by year three, the city would be totally transformed. I mean, we would have solved homelessness. Everyone would be responding to Jesus and be baptized by now, right? Right? Like, revival is here in Maple Ridge and Pitt Meadows. It it should have come by now. God, just kill me now. (laughs) I didn't pray that. I didn't pray that. But maybe you're in the middle of your disappointment. Maybe you're in the middle of disillusionment or struggle or you're deep in doubt, wondering what is going on. Or maybe you're in euphoria. You're on cloud nine. You're like standing at the triumphal entry being like, whoa, this is it. This is going to fix everything. Tim Keller writes this. What we think we need is almost always shallow. What God does in the short run is very confusing. Please keep in mind that when you come to him, he will give you what you really need and will in the long run exceed them, your expectations. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he does. Let me read that again. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything he does. If you learn this, you'll live a contented, non-anxious life. If you don't learn this, you won't. We come to God with our felt needs, and he goes to the root of things. Jesus didn't come to save Jerusalem. He came to save the whole world. He didn't come to make your life smooth sailing. He came to make a new creation out of you, to totally transform you. He didn't come to meet your expectations. He came to radically exceed them in impossible ways. Jesus is a true and better king. Better than Caesar, better than Archelaus, better than Elvis Presley. Some of you are thinking that better than what we pictured in our minds when we chose to follow him. Oh, Jesus, you're like this. He's better than that. More true and better. Jesus came to be the true and better king, not to sit on a throne that could be overthrown, not to rule an empire for a few days or weeks or months or years, and not to balance your checkbook and give you a cushy life. That's not why he came. He came to establish an eternal kingdom that will never be shaken. And the Pharisees, in that moment, they want to rebuke. They want to rebuke the disciples, and so they say, "Jesus, rebuke them. Tell them to stop saying all this. Tell them to stop saying you're the Messiah." Now, Jesus, he rebukes a lot of people. He rebukes a lot of different things: wind and storm, demons, sickness. He rebukes his disciples a number of times. But not this time. This time he receives the acclamation because it's true. He is the king. He is the savior. He is the Messiah. Now and later on a donkey and someday on a warhorse in the clouds. The true and better king. We trust and worship and follow a true and better king, Jesus. Jesus is a confident king. Jesus is confident because he has perfect communion with the spirit. And we also have the same spirit living inside of us, and we can walk in the same trusting confidence that Jesus does. And Jesus is a humble king. He came on a donkey, not with an army, but with disciples to give his life. He is the king worthy of our worship for who he is and what he has done and what he is doing. And he's a true and better king. We all come to God with our expectations, our need, the things that we think we need. But Jesus is a true and better King. He didn't come to meet your expectations, but to blow them away. God always gives you what you would have asked for if you knew everything He does. Let's pray.